runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 307 with guest Robert Kane, recorded Tuesday, March 5th, 2013. Run As Radio is produced each week by Plot Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is Robert Kane, also known as Arcane Code, and he's a Microsoft MVP and SQL Server and a Microsoft Certified Trainer in Business Intelligence, and he works as a Senior Consultant for Pragmatic Works. Welcome, Robert. So, uh, And you're a Pluralsight guy, too, right? I have done some recordings for Pluralsight, but uh, my main focus these days is uh, working with Pragmatic Works, uh, Doing a lot of training and consulting with them, and mostly in the in the business intelligence space. That is correct. Uh, almost entirely in the BI space, uh, working with all aspects of the SQL Server BI stack, uh, including Power Pivot and the new tabular data models. And I, I've gotten to a place now in my mind where I almost regret that BI ships with SQL Server because I think the products have less to do with each other than ever before. Well, to a certain extent, um, and, and there has been talk at times, like, for example, of uh, breaking those up, but the back-end database that really drives everything really starts with SQL Server. Right. And then the tools that kind of build on top of that, for example, Analysis Services works really well with the SQL Server back-end. Uh, the same with SSIS, it's really focused around SQL Server, so... At some level, it does make a certain sense to keep everything kind of in one family. Sure. And that whole ETL process is best done in SQL Server, getting it loaded into a form where analysis services can grab onto it. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, I've seen some great Oracle implementations and and some DB2 implementations. It can be done without SQL Server on the back end. That's correct. Uh, I've seen all kinds of back ends used to supply data for uh, analysis services, uh, including Oracle. I worked on a project just last year where Oracle was one of the data sources. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, the great thing too about SSIS as a data source, uh, as an ETL tool, is that SSIS can talk to pretty much anything. Right. So, text files, Excel, whatever, and we can massage it and get it into whatever format you want. Now, do you tend to use SSIS to stage into SQL Server, or are you going directly into analysis services? Uh, we like to, when we can, stage into SQL Server. It tends to reduce the load on production systems. You know, we pull it once rather than pulling it continually. Right. So it gives us an opportunity to combine things from different data sources together. Uh, I can take that SCP file you get in every month. I can pull it into your data warehouse area. Uh, I can pull data from your inventory system and from your production system and maybe from a HR system. I can combine all of these into the single data warehouse, and then pull that into your analysis services queue to create a really nice unified look for all of your reporting. And and I think most people's experience, in, if you're just trying to get into BI, is this, I'm going to take disparate data sources and be able to combine them to be able to learn something new. Absolutely. And that's really where the power of uh, BI comes in. Uh, I'll give you a good example. I was, had a client a couple of years ago. I was talking to him, and we were talking about getting his data to a data warehouse. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, 
you know, he said, okay, I, I can understand putting my, you know, say claims data into the system, but what I really want to put, say, my call center data? And I said, well, sure, because if you pull your call center data in, you know who your customers are. If you know who your customers are, you in turn, because you've got the data from this other system, know which offices are causing the most calls. You can then go back and work with those offices and identify the top reasons for the calls and try to reduce that call center time. Sure. And so sure enough, he did it and was able to come back later and implement some cost savings by not having to hire new folks for the call center. Actually make the call center more efficient, which I don't think is the first thought you have when you think about building out a data warehouse. I don't know how often you've had that experience where it's like the big value add that comes out of good data analytics tends to not be what you thought it would be when you started. And that happens on pretty much every project I've ever seen. That As we get into the project, the ideas start to flow. They get in with the mindset of, okay, we're going to produce this set of reports. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, hey, we've got this data, so now we can do this, which we could never do before. And, oh, wow, if we just grab this data over here, now I can do even more. And it's like a, one of those traditional rolling balls where it just keeps building upon itself and, you know, gives more and more utility and payback to the company. You called it reports. Are you really generating like to paper or is it, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of, of Ralph Kimball from way back and this whole idea of sort of dynamic analysis of pursuing the gestalt of the data. I don't know if that even takes place anymore. So how, how do you really, when you start to combine these disparate sources of data, how are you looking at it? How do you get that feel? Well, typically there's uh, one of a handful of front ends that we use. Uh, one, of course, is reporting services. Right. And what I have found on any project is is that probably, you know, 40% of the reports are actually coming out of the analytical queue, and the rest of it is coming from the actual SQL Server reporting data warehouse. And because a lot of the reports people want tend to be line item type things. Sure. Um, but as far as the front-end tools, again, you have reporting services, but there's also performance point services, uh, performance points inside SharePoint, mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with it. And it allows for very interactive, uh, I can click here and drill this number, and I can jump over here. Uh, and it's a really good tool for assembling a dashboard fairly quickly. Now, and I've certainly uh, had the experience where when I was a report builder, that I would create a report, and the result of that report would be the boss immediately saying, okay, now I need to see X, Y, and Z. Like, no report ever was just read and appreciated. It always needed to be changed. Something had to be added. I want to rotate the data a different way. I felt like I was a mechanical OLAP cube. There are some days that you, you get into that mode, um, but Microsoft put a big push toward what we call self-service BI. Oh, yeah. So you can now use front ends like Microsoft Excel to hook up to cubes and produce all sorts of spiffy reports that way. Uh, or you can even take it one step further and build your own kind of mini cube inside a tool called Power Pivot, uh, which is an add-on for Microsoft Excel, and it lets you pull data in from a whole bunch of disparate sources, and then basically um, build a cube-like pivot table on top of that, and then can do your own slicing and dicing and charts and reports and whatnot. Nice, and I think that, and everybody's already got Excel. I mean, you've reduced your deployment footprint substantially there. Absolutely. And people already know it, so they're used to it. Uh, when I teach Power Pivot or Excel reporting to analysis services, you know, people already know how to do pivot tables. So once you can get the data into the pivot table, they're like, oh, okay, I can handle this from here. And what's really nice, too, is with it being in Excel, SharePoint has Excel services. 
So now you can take this report that you've created and share it with your coworker by uploading it to SharePoint. Right. And then they can just use Excel services, or there's actually a whole Power Pivot module that you can put in SharePoint that'll actually let them interact with the Power Pivot pieces of the workbooks as well. So what's the difference between Power Pivot in SharePoint and Performance Point? Um, Power Pivot is actually, uh, I guess, almost like a back-end database. You pull the data into Power Pivot from Excel, mm -hmm. and then you upload that to SharePoint, and you've almost got like a mini cube sitting there, and it's kind of its own distinct little entity. With Performance Point, it's a totally different front end, and it talks directly to a traditional uh, analysis services database. Okay. But, you, I mean, normally when you're using Power Pivot, you're still fetching from a, 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 an OLAP cube somewhere? Well, most often I see Power Pivot used with more traditional data sources. And either I see people pulling in from Excel spreadsheets, from flat files, or from a traditional um, relational database. And pulling those pieces in and being able to do their own combination of data sources. Um, you could try to pull in from analysis services, and that certainly works. Right. But it's kind of redundant in my book because if the data is already in analysis services, it's already in a cube, which is essentially what Power Pivot does for you. It puts things in a cube. Right. And I'm, but I'm mostly after that, you know, getting back to that idea of that dynamic analysis. Like, I'm, I, I don't know what it is I don't know, and I'm trying to feel around for some relevant data. And I find Power Pivot to be an especially useful tool for that because it lets me work with people that can sit down, they can look at the data, play with it. You know, how many times have you been on a, you know, a project, and you mentioned it earlier, where you do a report for a manager yeah. and it says, okay, that's almost what I want. Well, now Power Pivot helps to shortcut a lot of that, and we can kind of let him play with it, use it, and kind of get to where he wants to with it. And then, if need be, we can then take it to the next step putting it into a uh, regular analysis services cube. Right. Make it a little more permanent. I guess, yeah, you know, we're sort of backing into this whole idea of how I get started with BI of, well, you know, show me, before I go and spend obviously a lot of time and money, can we get an early nugget to show, hey, if we had analysis services, we'd be able to see these things. Is it, you know, you've already described it. It sounds like Power Pivot could stand on its own. I only need Excel. And I've had many situations where, for a small solution, Power Pivot was a good uh, solution. It was just all they needed. They needed to pull data in from a certain number of data sources, but it wasn't a huge amount of data, and they right. were able to do everything they needed to right within Power Pivot to answer the questions they needed. So for for a small solution or just for a test case, this works pretty well, but i got to think, as you scale it up, it becomes problematic. Now, once once you get into the you know millions and millions of rows of data, right? That's when I've started to experience issues with Power Pivot. And even though I've seen things that'll handle you know hundreds of millions of rows, that's very dependent upon the computer you're running it on, right? You know, if you're on your average desktop with you know two to four gig of RAM, Power Pivot's very memory hungry. Sure. So it's not going to perform well at those levels. When it's and especially if you're starting to combine multiple data sources, like that could end up being an awful lot of memory. It can be, um, and its big brother tabular data models have a similar issue mm -hmm. because the engine behind them is all memory based, so everything resides on the memory of the computer it's executing on. 
So you best have a lot of RAM if you want to work with big data sets uh, under those tools. Sure. And then, but I do like the idea that, you know, when you're experimenting, you do that. And then as you, as that becomes valuable, you recognize that data, you could take it up a notch now, codify it in a way that more people can use it less painfully. And, and the nice thing, too, is oftentimes you can use Power Pivot as a stopgap solution. You know, maybe it's not the most performant. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's only good for this guy's department, whereas he eventually wants to make it good for the whole enterprise. But at least they have a tool that we've assembled in a matter of a day or two that they can actually get results from while they wait on us to actually turn around and build the, the final end solution uh, to, to provide that functionality to the whole enterprise. Yeah, you know, my experience with data warehouses, we've tended to just sort of grab everything we could and spend a long time trying to construct that first warehouse. You sort of end up with this sort of mother of all cubes with so much data in it, it's almost unmanageable. And then try and find something out. I'm, I'm pretty, I like the idea of starting with Power Pivot just to get uh, an initial set of data and some initial interesting results that give some direction to building that first queue. And one of the things that we like to focus on at Pragmatic Works is teaching what we call the agile methodology. I'm sure a lot of your .NET developers who listen to the show are really familiar with this, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a different concept for a lot of BI projects. So we like to break things off into very small pieces things that we can get done in a one-month iteration cycle and take you from nothing to a small but usable solution, maybe one core or two core fact tables, you know, 10, 12 dimensions, and then we get that to an end product, such as a, a couple of reports, on a point, dashboard, something like that, that the end users can start using today, and now we start building upon that every month. We have continuous release cycles. Users are happy because they're seeing progress being made. Uh, Additionally, the business is already seeing value from the end of month one. They're getting value back. They're seeing that the money they're investing in the solution is actually bringing returns back to them. So how do you pick those first few uh, bits of data, those first few facts and dimensions to get this first cube out the door? Well, our process is to sit down with the business users, and I like to start with asking the question, you know, what is it critical that you know that you do not know today? What results would you like to see, maybe report, whatever, that you just can't get today? Maybe it's a time issue it takes too long to get. Maybe it's just the data's not all in the same place. But what business problem right. are you trying to solve? Once we've analyzed those questions, we can then map those back to sources and say, okay, you know, I've got this list of 12 business questions. I've identified, you know, what things they want to measure, how they want to measure it. I can then map those back to the data sources. Then we put those in something uh, Kimball book uh, calls for, called a matrix. Mm-hmm. We assemble a little matrix, and then you can say, oh, okay, so we can get the most bang for our buck by doing this particular fact table because it overrides, you know, across these six or eight dimensions, and we can start answering some of these questions for the users right away. So there's always, your customer generally has a few questions in mind of things that's hard for them to answer right now. And that can give you a starting point to start to construct the cube. I mean, where, what happened? How do you go wrong? How many facts and dimensions are too many in a cube? Um, you know, it's one of those get depends answers. Um, sure. Because a lot of it's the scale of the data. Um, you know, you could have 10 fact tables if, 
they're all related and they're all fairly narrow in width, but maybe you've got a fact table that's got billions of rows, in which case, mm, yeah, maybe you want to keep that a little smaller and not have a lot of facts out there. Right. Uh, I like, though, to kind of keep it logically oriented. You know, what is it? This, we're trying to create a solution for the HR department. What does the HR department need to know? And we put those things together into a cube. And then maybe we can create a second cube in the same analysis services database for the production department with the information they need. But we've got all that data is coming from the same spot. Right. Even though you may carve it off differently to actually build these different cubes. And the nice thing about analysis services is when I create these dimensions, I can reuse them across multiple cubes so I get a high level of reuse. Sure. And I think that's, you know, once I have one piece in place, maybe you're going to start on another project and there's going to be a few things you can take from the first cube, but you're going to generate a bunch of new things as well. Yes, and that's one of the things I love about analysis services is how easy it is to reuse your various dimensions across multiple cubes. Sure. But there's also this sense that the customer has some idea what gauges are important in their business. I would hope so. If they're really a good business person, they're going to know what is the thing that they need to measure the most right. to tell them that their business is doing well. And those are the things we want to focus on. Can you turn that around? Can you show them measurements they may not have been aware of that actually correlate very well to success in the business? We can actually come up with some interesting things because another tool that is built into the SQL stack within analysis services is called data mining. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll give you a, a classic example of diapers and beer. Oh, yes. A classic story that's gone around for, for years, but, you know, there was a big box store, I won't say their name, but they, they do a study, and using the data mining tool, they find a, a surprising correlation between diaper sales and beer sales. And, in, you know, at the end, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, because what happens? Friday afternoon, you're on your way home from work, you get a call, honey, the baby needs more diapers, pick them up on the way home, and of course you're all, oh, geez, got to go to the store, fight the crowd, oh, you know, long week, grumble, 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 you get the diapers, then what happens? You think, wow, beer, I sure could use a beer. So you go by the beer aisle and out the door you go. Right. Well, when they discovered this, they actually positioned the beer and the diapers closer together and saw an increase in sales because they were able to find this correlation in their data using the data mining tools that are available. That's cool. Right? But that, there you have that unexpected correlation. But So that was actually data mining that turned that up? That, yes, it was. Totally surprised them, but there it was. And, then, and therein lies the real challenge is you know, knowing what data to put together. That's I, I think that's a particularly tough case for a DBA mind to think about. Look for what items in a given purchase are bought together. It's one thing to aggregate a given set, but now you're talking about multiple items within a set. Like that, that to me seems really challenging to find. Well, and not only that, but you're still thinking in the DBA mindset. Can you imagine how many millions of transactions that occur even on a daily basis and trying to write a SQL query that's going to scale out well enough to go across yeah. all of this data, you're, you're just not going to do it. Even if a, in a really well-tuned database, it's still going to be rough to try to do that over time. And 
you know, think about it. I want to aggregate my toilet paper sales for the last year. And then I want to start slicing and dicing that by, you know, right. division, by salesperson, by store. That's just not something you're going to be able to do easily or quickly within traditional uh, SQL Server relational database. And again, that's where the tools like analysis. Because you've already constructed a dimension that's the hierarchy of these divisions, departments, and so forth, and then you're able to apply it to different fact tables. So the you've done that hard setup of the dimension in the first place, and now different facts can be uh, uh, tied into it. I like to tell people that analysis services is basically a giant calculator, but it calculates it ahead of time for you. So it knows the different slices that you might want to look at this, and so it can go through these individual lifetime transactions, do a bunch of math ahead of time, so that when you go to want to slice and look at these uh, dimensional values, it can go, oh, okay, well, I've already got this piece, this piece, and this piece already added up, so I can just add these three numbers together to give you the results you're looking for. Is it mostly pre-computation? Exactly. Now, there's I mean, the other side of this, too, and I guess this is the stories people hear if they're not familiar with data warehouses, is data warehouses can get immense, much bigger than the source data. Absolutely. And because of a couple of different reasons. One, of course, is you're pulling data from multiple sources. But another concept that we use in data warehousing is flattening out their data. Uh, it's mm-hmm. okay to have duplicate values within your data warehouse. And this is the part when I'm talking about uh, data warehousing that I see the DBAs in the room start to get that little tick in their eye um, because we're going to we're going to break a lot of right. the rules around third normal form. Right. But the idea behind it is is we make it easier to report off of. For example, if you've got a table of products, well, in a traditional transactional system, you've got another table that has product color in it and right. another table that has product size. But we want to flatten that out to make it easier to report off of in the data warehouse. So, you know, you might have rows that says, you know, blue, 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 4X, 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 4X for the colors and the sizes. In a sense, we're trading off some disk space sure. to make it easier and, and, to clear. And OLAP cubes are read-only. I, I so third normal form was mostly about managing writes well. If it's all read-only, why do you care? Exactly. Um that your only trade-off is you're taking up a little more disk space, yeah. but I'm okay with that. You know, disk space these days is not the cost that sure. it was, you know, 10 years ago. So, you know, hey, go out, buy a couple more drives, throw them in there, and away you go. Robert, how do you feel about the whole, quote, big data movement? Is this replacing business analysis and analysis services stuff? We should just go all to Hadoop for everything? No, I really don't think so. I think Hadoop is really going to be structured well for what we call unstructured data, which is kind of an oxymoron because if you're putting it into mm-hmm. Hadoop, it's got to have some structure to it. Mm-hmm. But when we're dealing with things like analysis services, we're really talking about uh, measurements. We want to measure things. When we're talking about Hadoop, we're talking about big repositories that we can use to search for things with excellent text uh, Obviously, things like web pages, you store those in there. Um, I, I think a good example might be uh, customer comments on your website. You can go mine those comments. You store the comments in something like Hadoop, but then you can use uh, another tool, say analysis services, to go mine that data and say, finding all the uh, places where mm-hmm. a customer said this stinks or failed or those kind of things, 
and start kind of combine the two to give you some good analytics back. Uh, I don't see it. I see them as complementary tools, not necessarily competing right. tools. And it, and it is just another way to store data. Could I could I pull Hadoop data into analysis services ultimately? Ultimately, yes. Um, you would probably would have to write a translation layer because analysis services wants to talk right. to things that are in a relational format. Right. But you you could write some, um, and I forget what they call the little Java pieces to it, but you could write some Hadoop queries that pull back things to simulate a relational source and then eventually get that into analysis. Early. Now, with all the computing models going on like this, is the, it, to me it seems like uh, OLAP is, this is not what you'd call real time, right? Like you're, you're really talking about post-fat, end-of-day data that way. How do you normally set these things up? What do the, what do the customers actually want? Well, the customers want uh, a variety of things. Uh, I some customers who say they need real-time data. They want it up to the second. But then you start talking to them and try to figure out the way they're actually going to use that data. And I try to make them realize that analysis services is really meant for situations where we're going to aggregate data. And the fact that you sold 15 extra rolls of toilet paper in the last 10 minutes really isn't going to make a... a big difference when you're looking at your analysis because you're looking at trends over the last year. Right. Um, now, I have been in some situations where they did need fairly frequent updates, and I like to call that right time. You know, we figure out what the right window is, and I have used some times when we're pulling in data and then processing cubes in as small as 15-minute increments. So it's really about how are they going to use the data uh, of course, we don't process everything at that 15-minute level. Yeah, we have some data we process at 15. We have some data we process at the day level. Some things like month-end reports, you could probably just do at the month level. Yeah, I guess it, it depends on what the relevant measure is. If you're looking at sales by day, the un- incomplete day is kind of meaningless. Well, and two, you're looking at things over the last 45 days, the last 30 days. Right. And so... You're going to understand that, well, obviously, I don't have today's data because today's data is not done yet. Right. The so, day isn't over. We know, haven't so, reconciled. So I can only produce valid data through the end of the day yesterday. So if you help people, kind of guide people to understand that, you know, what the data means and, and how they're using it, and kind of sometimes you just have to remind them how you're using the data. Sure. But when you work with them hand in hand like that, you can produce the result that they need in the time they need it in. And one of the things that I've certainly run into and, and was something I'm afraid of is you sh- you produce a set of data and you show it to, you know, the VP of sales and the end of month sales numbers is not what his report generated. You know, they you end up with these two different reports, the old report that came up with a number a particular way and the analytics report, and it's got a different total and they start to question the validity of the data. And that is a, one of those growing pain things that happens a lot. And it just takes rolling up your sleeve and trying to determine where did this other report come from? How did it calculate its values? One of the things, though, that I think analysis services is nice about is that you can store calculations in the cube so that you can get everybody to try to agree upon a common definition for month-end closing value, Right. for example. And so now everybody's on the same playing field because everybody likes to report gets it from there. I had a situation where I came back from vacation one time, and I show up, and my coworkers are, are there, been pouring over these numbers, pouring over reports, 
And I said, well, you know, what in the world's going on? They explained to me that one of the managers had come in and said that our, I forget exactly what the number was, such and such a number was wrong. And so we start diving in, and I said, well, let's see his report. We bring it up and realize he's got a totally different definition for his report. He's calling it the same thing as everybody else, but it's a totally different definition. Right. So, you know, finding out, defining terms is a very important thing to do early on in the development process and getting everybody to buy off on, you know, what does X actually mean? Yeah, what does total sales for the month mean to this organization? And Exactly. You know. Are the refunds in? Are the refunds out? Like, there's so many taxes included, all these little subtleties that when you don't clearly outline these are the rules for that number, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. Well, and another thing you can do to help yourself there um, is what I call one version of the truth. Right. It's a common mantra in data warehousing. But, you know, you don't monkey with the numbers once they're in the data warehouse. If you discover that something's incorrect, you push back to the source, you fix it at the source, because your data warehouse should always be a reflection of the source. Right. You should never, quote-unquote, correct the data as it goes into the warehouse, because it's never going to be right. And then you're going to have the people who, again, they go look at the report out of the data warehouse, go look at the report of the source system, and they're not right. And it's got to be tough to get that trust back. Once people start to question numbers, they keep questioning numbers. 60% 60% of all BI projects wind up failing, unfortunately. Wow. And one of the big reasons is trust. People don't trust the numbers. They don't trust that they're getting data back in a timely fashion. Uh, and they just, there's all these communication issues that, that go on between IT and the business side. Mm-hmm. And BI is one of the areas that you've got to have a really close partnership between business and the IT department. Uh, when we start a project, I want that business guy in there for at least the first week of the project sitting with us and, and working with us on a daily basis to identify what are his needs, is this data correct, if we do a calculation that looks like this, is this right, and so that they have a good trust that we're actually doing it correctly. And I find getting that guy to actually take time off of everything else he's doing to focus on this is really hard. It is. It absolutely is. And sometimes you have to be creative. You know, maybe you do your first week in like half-day increments where you right. work with him dedicated for half a day and then your team half a day. Um, but it's absolutely vital. I had a project once where, you know, the, the business guys kept saying they're not available and the IT guys kept saying, hey, you know, we, we know what they want. So finally, I said, well, okay, can we please bring them in for an hour? Okay, we think we can get them all. We'll buy them lunch. You know, right. let them come and eat with us. We went over, and of course, the business people said, no, we don't need all that. All we really need is this, this, and this. Give it to us in Excel, and we'll be happy. So we would have wound up going and doing a bunch of extra work if we hadn't gone through that validation step to keep the business in a week. And that's not first week, too. You want to bring the business people back in at least once a week to say, what we've done so far, are we on the right track? And let them give that validation as we go through the process rather than waiting until the very end for them to say, no, that's not right. Yeah, that's, that's a, isn't that a terrifying moment? But I, I'd also like your idea that deliver something every month. Because if you go six months, you've got a tremendous amount of effort and money and then to find out, no, that's not what we want. And it's also easier in a one-month increment to 
sheer trip to change to the needs of the business. Sure. Uh, how many times have you been on something where all of a sudden, hey, big emergency, we now need to know this. How quickly can you get that turned around? So the whole project plan gets derailed because you stop everything to go work on this particular item. I also had a, a funny incident where uh, I came into a client and they said, well, our last project didn't go so well because we came in, we did this big project, we went six months on it, we got it done, and then the person that we got it done for was laid off like two months ago. <laughs> and so nobody knew what it was for, nobody knew what it was needed for, so now we're going to start all over again. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just regular office problems, right? I've just, I've seen software projects like that, clearly a BI project like that, websites, you know, actually communicating a bigger vision, not making it all about one person would, would help. Absolutely. Well, Robert, great to talk to you. I appreciate uh, helping us get our feet under us on building a BI project. Always good talking to you, too. And uh, hope people have gotten a little bit of a inspiration and enlightenment and you know, BI is really not all that scary. There's just a little piece of parts to it, but it can be a big benefit to a company when it's uh, implemented correctly. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you, Richard. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.